This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. Would you open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 10? We're fast-forwarding three months from the sheep and the shepherd from the first half of John 10. That was the festival of feasts, uh, the festival of tents, sorry, and that was September. But now this new little situation we're in is he is now fast-forwarded to December, and he is at the festival of dedication, which is what we would call Hanukkah which most of you have never heard of, and then Adam Sandler wrote a hit single, and now we all know about Hanukkah. I'm just going to read a couple of verses, and then we're going to go from verses ultimately 21 all the way to the end, but I just want to read these last few verses. My sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. I know them. They follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands, Jesus' hand and the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word brings light and wisdom in a dark and confusing world. But we live in the light. We are children of the light. We're not called to hide it under a bushel. We're called to let it, let it shine. Lord, I pray that you would be with our fellow pastors and churches in, in the area. I'm thinking about Mark and Leanne at Southview Church. God, you're doing amazing things there. Your spirit is moving so strongly and so powerfully. Would you be with them? Bless them this morning in the work that they're doing at Southview Church across the street with Nathan and Graceland Church. Lord, there's life in that church again. We are all on the same team. We are all here to serve you. No competition in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that I just read to you is a passage that is often used as a proof text for eternal security, for once saved, always saved. Does anybody know what I'm talking about with that doctrine? And I'll bet in this room, uh, I could find probably 50-50 almost as to once saved, always saved. Or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of opinions on it. But I would like to say that this verse, as it makes a point that you could say, yeah, he's making a point that maybe could be a once saved, always saved. I would suggest to you that there are actually way better scriptures in the New Testament that speak about that that you could use for this. This one is not a, a strong case for it because look what he says. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. He doesn't say no thing. He doesn't say no behavior. He says, no one will be able to snatch you out of my hand, which begs the question, who is the one that wants to snatch you out of his hand? Who are the one or ones, plural, that he is protecting us from? That there might, it it indicates that there are enemies in the earth that want to snatch you out of his hands, that they want to keep us out of his 
hands. Now his offer to us is this, that as long as those enemies are out there, if you are in me, right, and, and I'm the Father and the Father's in me, you are secure because I am supreme and because he is stealth as well. And as we move through this text, that's how we're gonna follow it through because Jesus is secure. If there are enemies that want to take you out, one of the best places to be, I mean, uh, I, I know that Micah watched Rocky yesterday. How many of you guys remember your first time watching Rocky when you were a kid? All the dudes. <laughs> Didn't it just speak to something in your soul? Like when you know, Rocky's like, I'm, I'm going to prove to them I'm not a bum. I'm going to, you know, like he, if he could just win this fight, like, you're, you know, they just hits you deep inside. But there were enemies that want to take out Rocky. I, I don't know. I look back now, you know, some things in your childhood that seem super normal, CJ, and then you look back going, that might have been abusive. The town I grew up in, we had boxing for like second and third and fourth graders. Did anybody else have that in your town? Oh, geez. I might need to bring this up in therapy. So it might confirm what I thought, which was it really wasn't kid boxing as much as it was our version of like rooster fights, but we didn't have roosters, so we put kids kids in the ring. Walters, did they not do this in Iowa either? Wow. So I'm in third grade, boxing. And now that I look back, I actually want to call my, we should call my dad right now. Uh, like, I, maybe the parents were like wagering. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, in Haiti, one of the, one of the ways we knew the economy was, <laughs> one of the ways we knew the economy was bouncing back a few years ago before it came apart again was, was the cockfighting rings reopened like right next to the church that have a big church service going on and next door, you could literally put some money down on your favorite rooster in, in, their, in their fighting. And so I, the economy was clearly bouncing back. But point is, you know, I was not safe in my hands because I was, I was not a rotund child, but in boxing, you got to be skinny, skinny, skinny. So a kid my size, I was, always, I was fighting guys that were like this tall, but they weighed as much as I did. And it was the classic thing where they could just put their hand on my head and I'm like swinging and I couldn't hit, you know, couldn't hit him. Now, if I got on the ground, I could wrestle him, but that, we weren't allowed to do that in boxing. The point is, I was not safe in my hands and apparently I was not safe in my father's hands because he's over there betting. And I'll bet he had to have been betting against me. If, you know what I mean? If he's wanting to make money, it's, you know, at some point you're going to, hey, he's not going to pull this off. That kid's like six foot eight. And, but not safe in his hands. But there were enemies out there that wanted to take me out and just like this Jesus saying, there's enemies out there that want to take you out, but you're safe in my hands, and you're safe in my hands because I am the Father of one, which means you're in his hands as well. You're safe. Now, he is saying this in a place called Solomon's Porch. If you read the very beginning of that chapter, uh, verse 22, the festival of the dedication, it's Hanukkah, it was winter. Verse 23, he was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. It's Solomon's Porch. It's a different word for it. That was not a part of the original temple. This is what's known as the second temple period. Okay? First temple was Solomon's temple. Second temple started, this was about a 700-year reign after Babylon destroyed the temple. Remember Ezra, Nehemiah, we went back, we rebuilt the temple, we used the burnt stones. 
This is a part of that temple. It was not as grand. It was not as glorious. And so a guy named Herod the Great comes along and wants to put his name on this. And he begins to build this into what was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this great, massive temple, which much of still stands today or has been rebuilt today in different places. But Herod the Great rebuilt this, including Solomon's porch. Nothing to do with Solomon. Solomon had never seen this before. There was nothing left of Solomon when this was built. So Jesus is standing in Solomon's porch built by Herod the Great. Now, I don't know if you're history buffs. I don't know if you're Bible buffs. But do you remember what Herod the Great tried to do to Jesus when he was a baby? It was Herod the Great that sent out an edict to kill all of the children under two years old in Bethlehem in an attempt to kill the Messiah to kill Jesus. Jesus was taken away to Egypt where he was survived. There's a whole story there that's fascinating of how God's providence works. He comes back, Herod the Great is dead, but now it's Herod Antipas, his son. He had two sons. He gives this Herod charge over Jerusalem. He basically splits the land. You get this part and you get this part. Antipas had Jerusalem. He had Judea, Samaria. Antipas was the one that killed his cousin John just a few months earlier. Jesus is standing in the very place that Herod's power, glory, and heritage, his entire thing is in this, and he's standing there and saying, you are safe not in Herod's hands, you're safe in my hands. He is does nothing on accident. Nothing he said, nowhere he said it did he say it without meaning something profound. And he was saying to the powers that be, to the Donald Trumps, to the Joe Bidens, right? To the congressmen, to the senators, to the Putins, to the Zelenskys, you are not safe in any of their hands, but you are safe in my hands. You can pay money and walk over Herod's grave. And you can walk into Jesus' grave and he ain't there because Herod is still dead and Jesus is alive. So you are secure in Christ. And the reason you're secure in Christ is because he is supreme. Not the pizza. Although at 12 o'clock, that's that's the very first thought I had, Connor, was supreme pizza. That sounds pretty good right about now, doesn't it? He is supreme. He makes a statement here that is fascinating. Let's just skip down to verse 34. So the Jewish people, they've picked up stones. They want to kill him. He's claimed to be God again. They're mad at him. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, those that wanted to kill him for claiming to be God. Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside? For those of you that have heard people like Andy Stanley say that we can unhitch from the Old Testament, Jesus said you cannot unhitch from the Old Testament. God bless 
all pastors that are trying to do what Jesus called them to do, but that is not what you can't, dis- it's, Jesus didn't do it. You can't say that you follow Jesus, but I'm not going to read the Old Testament just because it's inconvenient. We're broadcasting, aren't we? I'm just kidding. I knew that. I have, listen, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father set apart as his very own and sent into this world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy when I said I am God's son? Now, if you read that on first blush, you think he's saying you are God's. You're God, Josh, I'm a God, we're all the gods. Now there is, by the way, a theology and ideology in the world right now that says that. We're all, we're all God. God is within us. There's God everywhere. That is not the claim that Jesus is making. And here's how I know that, because he's quoting Psalm 82, verse 6. If you've got your Bibles out this morning, maybe get your pen and your notebooks, get your camera. You might want to take a couple pictures of slides. I'm about to do something that is known as stunt preaching. Have you heard of this? Stunt preaching is I'm going to attempt to get into a subject that is incredibly deep, fraught with controversy and dangerous. I'm going to try to get in and out very quickly without anybody getting hurt. It's like parkour preaching. Parkour! I'm bouncing off the walls, and my goal by the end of this thing is I'm going to land it right back there, and everybody's going to be alive. Now, if that doesn't happen, um, Mo's not here, so email him, mo at conduitchurch.com. <laughs> now, what I, what I want to share with you is, a, is this idea of what in the Scriptures actually called divine counsel. If it's a phrase you've never heard before, that's perfectly normal. There are some things in Scripture that are so simple, so obvious, that you have to go to seminary to misunderstand them. Most, most seminaries, not all, approach Scripture, at least let me phrase that, I'm going to go back, Western seminaries approach Scripture from a post-enlightenment, uh, cessationist background of Scripture. But you have to ask yourself when, when the Bible, is, a, a Scripture is being quoted, when, when you're reading a Scripture, you've got to keep it in context, right? Context means the verses before, the verses after, and the context in which it was originally spoken and understood. That is also in context. So for me to take my context of Western Christianity, force it onto the Jewish second temple period idea of theology is the exact opposite of what Jesus meant. What did they think? What were they hearing? What, what, were, what were they believing? And what was he, why would he quote Psalm 82.6? Because remember this, if you take the text out of context, all you're left with is a con. In context... Jesus is quoting Psalm 82, right? Verse 6. Who is it that you are gods? It's not, the, it's not the people there. It's not you or me. Who is it that he is saying is the gods? He tells us, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. 
And he says to them, this is not a kind thing he's about to say. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse five, the gods, again that word which is benai Elohim, know nothing, they understand nothing. They walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. And then he says, I said, you were gods, you were all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. He is not talking about humans in that context. You will die like mortals. Everything he's talking about is a supernatural lens over the scriptures. If you want to do more work in this, if you want to literally blow your minds, especially if you've come from maybe a more cessationist, a more conservative theological background, I highly recommend Dr. Dr. Michael Heiser, his book, The Unseen Realm. I read this like 12 years ago. It was amazing. It's still amazing. His most recent work is a book called Reversing Hermone. His podcast is called The Naked Bible Podcast. It's not at all what it sounds like. He's, so far as I know, fully clothed the whole time, but it's like the Naked Bible Podcast. You'll never forget it, right? The Naked Bible Podcast. But Dr. Heiser, who is no schlup, by the way, like Logos Bible Software, he is one of their experts, one of their theologians. The, the ideas that I'm about to share with you, what I'm saying, these are not fringe at all. They just haven't been taught much in our context. I'm leaving for Nepal in just a few days, and I promise you, nobody in Nepal is going to need this kind of a clarification, okay? They, they, they don't be wondering whether there's a supernatural world out there, right? Because they just saw it. Now, that said, in the Bible, the sons of God, the, it's the word Elohim. You might have heard that phrase before. In the Bible, you're going to hear phrases. The Old Testament, you hear it especially. The sons of God, the host of heaven, rulers and authorities is something you see in the New Testament. The divine council is another phrase that you might hear. When you see phrases like that, it's specifically talking about a specific created divine being that is not God and that is not the, the kind of angels that we think about. In our modern idea, we think of angels and demons because they're kind of the only two things we really know. And and in in some ways, that's maybe a a failure on teaching. Mostly, it's just a failure of the English language. Uh, The English language is inadequate when it comes to trying to describe. So even that word gods with a little g, there's a different word in Hebrew. So a Hebrew reading of that would, would see Yahweh right? When they see God, the Lord, like when you see the word, the Lord in all caps, most times that is going to be Yahweh in the Hebrew. And when you see little gods like this, it's going to be some sort of a phrase that's usually going to be Elohim or Benai Elohim. Those are the words that you would see. So they're not confused by this. We're only confused because of our English language. Why does this matter? These divine beings who, remember what we started with, who can snatch you? No one can snatch you out of the hands of Jesus. You are safe. Who are the enemies that want to come after you? The fallen angels, the fallen Elohim, the divine council that rebelled against God, they are still on the planet. Here's an example of this from 1 Kings. There's a 
a conversation that's happening about King Ahab and Jezebel. We were literally just in the tunnels that Ahab dug 3,800 years ago out of Megiddo. Now, now think about even just the big picture of the scripture right here. Megiddo, Megiddo, Armageddon, like the city of Megiddo was Ahab and Jezebel's city. And to protect it, they dug these giant water, literally chiseled them out. You can walk in them to this day, 3,800-year-old caves where they got water into the city. It overlooks this valley of Jezreel where the battle of Armageddon and Revelation will take place. Of the other side of the valley, when you look way on the other side, Don, it's utterly fascinating. There's a city called Nazareth. Nazareth. That means Jesus grew up as a teenager overlooking the valley of Jezreel, the battle that one day he will fight the ends of, like all of the enemies of God on that valley. He grew up looking at it in his front yard. He had a front row seat to it his entire childhood. Fascinating. But look what happens when we're going to, this is God saying, hey, we need to take Ahab out. That dude is a problem. His wife is a nut job. We got to figure this all out. They're all nuts. And what does he say? I heard the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with, what do we say? The multitudes of heaven, a phrase referring to Benai Elohim, standing around him on his right side and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another suggested that. It feels like a staff meeting at Conduit on a Tuesday morning. What if we do this? What if we do that? It's like popcorn ideas and eventually... You get enough popcorn, you get a whole bowl of it, and you get something real good. This, that, and the other. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out, be a deceiving spirit, listen to this, in the mouths of all his prophets, one of the primary roles that the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, the council, the fallen angels, they still have only one real weapon, a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And you will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord, go and do it. And so the Lord put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. God worked with his divine counsel, the Benai Elohim. What did Jesus say? Gods, you said they're gods. He is talking about these created beings. There's another one that we're very familiar with, which is the book of Job, right? Now here you see that it says that we present you on the day the angels, on the, uh, verse six, this is Job one, verse six. On day one day, <laughs> come, come home, Shannon, <laughs> please. <laughs> Came to present themselves before the Lord. Listen, that says the angels. That is not what the Hebrew says. That is some helpful interpreter saying it couldn't be the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, it has to be angels, but that is not what it says. And in like ESV, many translations translate it properly as the sons of God. And I wanted you to put that up there in the nearly inspired version to show you that in the modern context, we wanted to sort of wash this a little bit so it didn't sound nearly so strange, but that is what it says, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Another example of this is in Daniel, where the archangel Michael, the the prayer had happened, and, and, and the angel came and said, man, I would have been here sooner, but I was busy fighting the prince of 
Persia, the, a, 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 an Elohim, a son of God, like a spiritual being that is on the earth that had control of that area. One more. Yeah, one more. Deuteronomy 32, and I, this is important because as students of the Bible, which I know all of the 11 a.m. guys you are for sure. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he is speaking specifically of Genesis 11, the, 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 the table of nations after Babel, the Tower of Babel, and now we, I've got to spread this out. We've got to send you all out to the ends of the earth now. Right? That's what he's speaking of. He says, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob allotted his heritage. And then again in verse 43, he says again, bow down to him, all gods. If you've got an NIV, if you've got a King James, if you've got an NASB, almost every translation says sons of Israel. Why does ESV say sons of God? We were just in Israel at the caves of Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. In 1947, those scrolls, if you don't know this, was almost 80-90% of our Bible that we have it as today, the Old Testament, were found in these caves. And the miracle was, CJ, that of everything that they found in that a cave, that everything was so accurate that the handful of things that were like, this is different, this is just slightly different, would fit. So in your whole, if you hold your Bible up and then take one page, it would all fit the things that, that were just a little, maybe this word could have been different, this could have been like one page and a half. The front and a half of a page would fit. That's how many tiny little things. Nothing that changed any doctrine, nothing that changed anything that we believe, just a period here or a word there. One of them was this. And what they found was in Deuteronomy 32 verse 8, the fragment they found did not say the sons of Israel, it says the sons of God. The Masoretic text from where we get most of our translation today came later than these texts, which were held by the Essenes. This was the Bible that Jesus read while he was on the earth. And he said, are they not all gods? And by the way, if you want to go with us in Israel, this was a photo taken from Qumran. That is the Dead Sea Behind us on the other side is where the caves of Qumran are. It is unbelievable, the miracle of even how they found those, those uh, documents. I mean, C Caleb, you were there. Like, it's crazy. They found these, the, 19, like the day before the war, the week before the war, if they had not found them, gotten them to New York, the little shepherd that got them had no idea what he even found. They got them out of Israel right before Jordan attacked. If radical Islam had found those things and taken them, they would have been disappeared off the face of the earth forever. But God wanted you and I to know that the Bible that we hold in our hand is as accurate as it was 2,500 years ago. We're holding the exact same words that they were reading. And what they were reading was that it wasn't the sons of Israel, which makes more sense because in Genesis 11, there were no sons of Israel. He didn't send Abraham out until Genesis 12. Wait, it just makes more sense. Now, 
If you want to take pictures of this, we don't have time to go into it. These are the vocabulary that you'll see throughout the Old Testament story. From the disinheriting of the nations to God calling Abraham out in Genesis 12 to create a new nation, his portion. The Old Testament story is Israel versus the nations and it's Yahweh versus their gods. It was a twin rebellion. Man rebelling against God and God's, right, Elohim rebelling against God. Paul's vocabulary, oh, sorry, did you do that? My bad. And I say, my bad. I don't know how to make it go backwards, if I'm being really honest. That one. So you get your picture real quick, because I got another one. Okay. In the New Testament, this is what you're going to see. Rulers, principalities, powers, dominions, thrones, world rulers, all referring to the same, the, the idea of what gods are in the New Testament. Now, For us as believers to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament, because this sounds weird, because we're enlightened now. We know better now. We have to also admit that archaeologists, anthropologists, historians have unanswered questions that if this worldview is true, answer all of their questions. Right now, they're saying space aliens are how this happened. In fact, look at this. They keep coming up with multiple theories about how the Great Pyramid was built, and none of them make any sense to me. I've, I've been lucky enough to climb the Great Pyramid five times. I've explored every internal passageway. This thing is just a gigantic mystery in stone. It challenges us to think again about everything in the ancient world. The fact that it incorporates the dimensions of our planet in its, in its key dimensions, that you can take the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply by 43,200 and you get the polar radius of the Earth. You can measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid, multiply it by the same number, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. I won't bore you, but that number is not a random number. Anybody who goes into my books will find that it relates to the obscure astronomical phenomenon called precession of the equinoxes. The Great Pyramid is almost perfectly aligned to true north within three sixtieths of a single degree. 13-acre footprint, 6 million tons, 481 feet high, and aligned to true north with this, with this incredible precision. I think they're trying to, they're trying to tell us something. When the pyramid speaks to our planet, it speaks to this earth, it's aligned to true north, and it's built on a scale that models the dimensions of the earth, and that scale is derived from a key motion of the earth itself. Very, very clever. And again, I try and mention this to archaeologists, they say, ah, it's just a coincidence, it's just, it's just rubbish, you know, that's what, that's, that's, that's what they say. And it's such a lazy way to dismiss the data rather than getting to grips with the data and saying, could this really have happened by coincidence or is something going on here? Could it have been a coincidence? All I know is that they don't know. And those that say they do, don't. And there are those, and I've, I've heard these archaeologists, you can find YouTube video, oh, we know how they made them. And they'll have these pictures of, of slaves, which Egypt did not use slaves to build the pyramids, FYI. They used precision tools, carrying up two-ton rocks. Let's say maybe they did. I mean, Carrie, you've done some construction. 2.3 million stones that took to build this pyramid. But what they don't know is how do you move a, uh, how do you move a stone that's 
two tons? How do you move a stone that's above the 70 tons? In the Great Pyramid are five further chambers. And these chambers are roofed and floored with granite beams that weigh about 70 tons each. And there are hundreds of them. And these 70-ton granite beams, which to put in context, a 70-ton beam is equivalent in weight to 35 large SUVs. These 70-ton granite beams have been elevated to a height of more than 350 feet above the ground and carefully and precisely uh, placed in position. It is very hard for archaeologists to explain how that was done using purely leverage and mechanical advantage. You can say, oh, perhaps they built a ramp and, and, and hauled the stones up the ramp. But then you have to confront basic laws of physics. You can't haul a, a stone weighing tens of tons up a slope that exceeds 10 degrees. Unless, when human beings began to increase in number, Genesis 6, on the earth, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, May my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, for their days will be 120 years. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also after, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And the Lord saw how wicked the earth had become. You see, aliens, or maybe the Bible is actually true. Maybe something was happening that was so wicked, so demonic, creating a super race that would wipe out the bloodline of Christ himself in redemption, that Genesis 6 would turn to Genesis 7 when he needed to just start over on the earth with floods. The thing we know right now is the great sphinx, for instance, has been dated long before they thought it should have been there. If, if, this is not controversial at all. The great sphinx that's sitting out there, it's been there long before they thought it was there. And what does it show? Tons of water erosion from great rainfalls that fell on it. How did that happen? Here's what I know. I said that you are gods. You were all sons of the Most High. But you, speaking to the divine council who rebelled against God, you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Jesus made a claim, not that you're a God, I'm a God, we're all a God, I'm just another one. No, he's saying that, and they knew what he meant. They believed in these Elohim. They believed in these gods. And he's saying, I'm not just greater than you. I'm greater than them. I and the Father are one. You have nothing to be afraid of. You're safe in my hands. The, these divine beings, these demonic, whatever phrase you want to give it, you are going to be just fine if you are in my hands. And the last thing he said was, I, I, I just want to, I put the word stealth because they tried to, because that that infuriated him. We're going to kill you. He escaped one more time. They couldn't put their hands on him because he is so stealth. But what I mean by stealth is this. He disarmed, Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, defeating them through the cross. The stealth part was they thought we kill him like a mere mortal, in 1 Corinthians 2, he picks up on the idea that had these powers known, they would never have crucified 
the king of glory. He tricked them. His stealth was, you can try to kill me, but that's not an interruption of the plan. That is the plan. They would never have crucified him because it blew up in their face. He made a show of them. And I say that in our world right now, for the last moment we have, those principalities, those powers, whatever you want to call them, they still exist. Satan is not omnipresent, right? The prince of Persia, all the, the, these areas of the world, but we have nothing to fear if he's putting lying spirits in the mouths of the prophets and mouths of our politicians and the mouths of whoever is trying. We don't have anything to fear because we are safe in his hand. He is supreme. He is secure. He is stealth. And the reason maybe we don't get to know why the, the future right now is it's, it's a plan that's being unfolded to defeat these demonic forces. He didn't reveal the plan the first time. I could, I could look at three or four ideas of eschatology and probably look at it. Oh, this, I can make a case for this, or I can make a case for that, and I can make a case for this. Here's all I know. The one plan is this. Jesus is coming back. He is going to open the can of whoop God and destroy the whole thing and start over. Because he is supreme, he is secure, and if you put your hope in anybody else's hands, I mean, aren't you getting tired of putting all your hope in a politician that once he gets elected, and then he does the exact opposite of what he said he was going to do, or she? Aren't you getting a little tired of putting your hope in your trust? Go vote, for sure. But don't put your hope. Put your vote in a politician, put your hope in Jesus. Stand in, let's pray. Heavenly Father. You destroyed the principalities and the powers. You made a show of them openly. You, Father, put us safely in the hands of Jesus. And in his hands, they are your hands because you and the Father are one. We have nothing to fear from lying spirits. In fact, we have not only nothing to fear, we have faith to walk into whatever is coming knowing that we are going to be totally safe and secure in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.